Welcome to Weird Era, a literary podcast where we ask the right questions. Today we are talking to Anna Biller. She is a filmmaker and a writer known for her feminist point of view and for her meticulously crafted visual design. The New York Times called her cult film The Love Witch a hothouse filled with deadly and seductive blooms, and IndieWire called her debut feature Viva a pitch-perfect resurrection of the Valley of the Dolls' Days of Cinema. She is currently in development for a ghost movie set in medieval England. And today we're talking to her about her debut novel, Bluebeard's Castle. Bluebeard gets a feminist gothic makeover in the subversive take on the famous French fairy tale from the acclaimed director and for fans of Jane Eyre. When the successful British mystery writer Judith Moore meets Gavin, a handsome and charming baron, at a birthday party on the Cornish coast, his love transforms her from a bitter, lonely young woman into a romance heroine overnight. After a whirlwind honeymoon in Paris, he whisks her away to a secluded Gothic castle, but soon she finds herself trapped in a nightmare as her husband's mysterious nature and his alternation between charm and violence become increasingly frightening. As Judith battles both internal and external demons, including sexual ambivalence, psychological self-torture, gaslighting, family neglect, alcoholism, and domestic abuse, she becomes increasingly addicted to her wild beast of a husband. Why do women stay in abusive relationships? The answer can be found in the tortured mind of the protagonist, whose richly layered fantasy life parallels that of the female gothic romance reader. Filled with dark humor and evocative imagery, Bluebeard's Castle is a subversive take on modern romance and gothic erotica. Hi, Anna. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, thank you. Glad to be, glad to be here. Um, so, you know, it's very obvious that the book was heavily influenced by, you know, Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, um, or there are at least, at the very least, there are quite a lot of references and similarities. And, and so I guess I just want to ask you, what appeals to you about the gothic genre? Um, well, first of all, they're women's stories mm-hmm. and they're usually written by women from a, they're from a female point of view. And I like to read a lot of classic literature and, um, the female Gothic is just, a, I think is a really great, um, is a really great genre for women. Um, you know, even Jane Austen dabbled in it a little bit, you know, and Anne Radcliffe at the end of the 18th century kind of started the female Gothic and then the Brontes took it up and Du Maurier. And it just seems like a, a really um, great genre to talk about women's desires and fantasies and fears and their ambitions. And um, the fact that it's an older genre, that it was, it's been around for a long time. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, at a, t- at a time when it was mainly men writing all the books, that these were the books that women devoured. And then there was a revival in the 1960s with a kind of neo-Gothic, um, like the, like my cover, which has a, a woman fleeing from a castle. They all had those covers. And it was just, it's really just like a genre that's, that's made for women that, that women writers tackle. Um, so it just seemed, you know, now again, I read a lot of classic literature and then I read a lot of fairy tales. It seemed just like the perfect thing for me. 
especially acknowledging that it seems like it's a genre for women, why do you think they're also consistently erotic? Well, this is a, new, a newer thing. Like, um, like the Brontes, you know, that, you know, that was an erotic. And, and Du Maurier's books weren't erotic. You know, so actually the, the neo-Gothic phase, um, which started actually with the, in 1960 with the Victoria Holtz book, The Mistress of Melon, this is basically a rewrite of Jane Eyre. It also takes place in the 19th century. And the most scandalous thing that happens in that book is a stolen kiss in a ballroom. <laughs> And um, the books were very chaste all throughout the 60s. And then there was a 1972 book called The Flame and the Flower, which changed all of that. And that was, was highly erotic. And then from then on, because that book sold so well, you know, all the books in order to sell had to be erotic. But they weren't erotic. But, you know, this is just like the early 70s. You know, it was like explosion. That was like the year when the sexual revolution exploded. Right. So men's... You know, so actual, like, hardcore pornography also was very big at that time in the mainstream. You know, there were people making mainstream hardcore pornography films. So it's kind of like the, it was kind of like the films became the men's version of pornography and the books, the, the gothic romance books became the women's version. Of the, it was more like erotica than pornography because it's, you know, text. But, um... That's just the way it went. And then those novels sort of died out by like the early 90s, I guess. Um, and then I think like with Fifty Shades of Grey, the erotic dark romance like exploded again on the scene. And I just feel like it's like women love to read about dark romance. They just love to, read, you know, and it's like it came back because it needed to come back because it had been dead for a couple decades. And people were like, yeah, great. Bring, the, bring it back. <laughs> you know? Now there's so many there's so many romance writers out there. But the, my book is not a romance, actually. It's more it's more like the Brontes or like Du Maurier. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it is erotic. Mm -hmm. It does have an erotic dimension, but that's really not the point. Mm -hmm. The fantasy, the, the, the erotic fantasy is just kind of a, you know, it's part of her psyche and it's part of her, um, her life. But it's really not one of those books that's all about that, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. Um, but it certainly doesn't shy away from it either. Um, on page 10 of, of Male Desire, Judith reflects on a passionate look she receives from a man. Um, he was gazing at you, right? He was gazing at her with the look of smoldering passion that men get when they don't care what happens to them. If their wife leaves them or their house burns down or they're killed, as long as their gaze finds its desired object. What are you saying here about heterosexual attraction? Like, what is it about a woman that can make a man just give up everything? Why did I know exactly what this look was <laughs> when I was reading it? I don't know if it's like heterosexual, but it has to do with the desire that comes through the eyes, through the gaze. Like, I had a woman at one of my um, signings recently look at me like that. Mm. Mm -hmm, <laughs> and I felt that same feeling. And it's like, oh, uh, it doesn't have to be a man. Right, right. <laughs> But the feeling of being desired is a very powerful feeling. You know, when mm -hmm. somebody looks at you like they want you, and it's a look of desire, but it's also a look of, like, you're the only one that exists in the universe for this person. And it's just like a sublime feeling that's so transcendent, so overpowering when somebody looks at you like that. Like, like, like they feel like they'll die, you know, if they can't um, possess you. That's a very mm -hmm. powerful thing. It's like it comes from nature or something. I don't really know. <laughs> but... <laughs> But um, but through the eyes, like so much can be communicated 
you know, and usually I think love and desire and sex are, you know, like it's um, nowadays we need to consent to everything, but the least sexy thing of all is to be like, oh, uh, would you like me to do this right now? You know, can I, may I really a turn off, you know? So usually like most, absolutely, most passion comes like in, in the nonverbal cues. This is a consistent thread line in terms of the, the sort of literature I'm drawn to and, and, and the authors that I, I get to speak to, especially when they're, you know, feminist centered is like how unsexy consent can be, which I realize that listeners, how problematic that sounds. And obviously we believe in, you know, a safe and healthy sexual culture uh, but truly there is something fascinating about female desire, I think, and the ways in which um, a lot of intellectually dominant women do ultimately want to be sexually uh, sublimated. Uh-huh. Um, That's true. But I also like in the end, um, I kind of go really kind of pretty hard in the book. Mm-hmm about how that may not be a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I mean, not yeah. in terms of, you know, judging anyone's desire, what they mm-hmm. like or, or whatever, but just in terms of just, like, the idea that sometimes consent is a very slippery slope mm-hmm. and how later, it's only later sometimes if somebody is, so, is, a think, is able to think about it, get some distance from certain events when they realize that there, there's a possibility that acts that they did that, that they thought were consensual or actually were not consensual. This is like some, some you need some distance from the situation. This uh-huh. is how trauma works. It's trauma victims can never know, they can never be aware of the trauma while they're in it. It's only when they exit the trauma. Uh-huh. And sometimes years later, sometimes even decades later, that it uh-huh. suddenly dawns on them because they can't, they can't um, process it until they're safe, until they feel safe in the environment. And they're uh-huh. not safe. When, when you're with an abuser, you're not safe. And so you don't uh-huh. feel safe to um to understand what's going on Mm -hmm. while you subvert the idea that a woman who actively withstands abuse is quote-unquote asking for it in this novel uh you also very much address abusive language you know on page 193 judith thinks i'm certain that if i love him properly we can be happy again Uh, on page 217 i allowed him to love bomb me i allowed him to love bomb me into a slave-like compliance and i guess my question is do you think abuse is something we allow? And does that in any way negate its definition as abuse? I feel like this is a common conversation about women, sort of that they put themselves in that situation, especially when they choose to stay or that it is a choice to stay. And I'm sort well, of I think wondering. It, I think yeah. there is a complicity, but it's not a complicity with full, with full understanding of what somebody is being complicit with i think this is the problem is that there's a lot of lying that goes on um abusers lie a lot they really lie and and so what the woman is consenting to is what he tells her is happening not what is actually happening so she is complicit with something but the thing that she's complicit with is the thing that they say they're doing not the thing that's really happening she's not complicit with with what's actually happening she's complicit with the lie Mm -hmm. So the, the idea, so she sees all the red flags and this is like, I wrote it very carefully, like from the very beginning, she sees all the red flags. Mm-hmm. In fact, in the very first, first time, you know, on the beach, when she meets him, she mm-hmm. notices that when he says, I'm interested in murder too, she notices that he says it like as if he's not interested in just reading about it. He might be interested in actually doing it. Mm-hmm. And she sees that about him, that he's violent. Mm-hmm. She sees he's violent. Mm-hmm. And then he also gives her a violent look, an extremely violent look. And she says, I think you're my death. And she's nervous. And she says it. And then he seizes her and, and kisses her. 
And um, <clears throat> she's aware that he's dangerous, but she thinks that it's a game. Like she mm -hmm. can control him and it's like a fun game. It's like an erotic, it's like a romance. It's a hot, sexy, could be scary, but she thinks she's in control. Mm -hmm. She believes she's in control the entire time. And mm -hmm. she may, um, you know, so there's a dance and there is a complicity, but it's like she doesn't have all the facts, mm -hmm. you know. On page 224, Judith meditates on why she finds, again, quote unquote, nice guys so unattractive. Uh, she says they understand nothing about a woman's soul and they promise a tedious, dreary life. They imprison you within the patriarchal structure of duty and wifeliness, whereas bad men whisk you away from all expectations of proper behavior into a life of sublime and mindless pleasure. And I don't necessarily disagree with her when I was reading this, uh, but I also think that a lot of women out there would also take issue with this kind of statement. I think I think it's obvious what's harmful about what's being said here, but is there is there a way about what maybe could be celebrated about what she's being said here. Like, it's okay to want excitement and desire and passion. Do, do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, but basically what, what, what she's explaining here is the fact that the patriarchy is is very oppressive so that you become a wife then you become some somebody's like kind of like slave. And so like nice, she's, she's afraid like nice guys might just actually, they might seem so nice, but actually they just want like, a mother and like a, a cook and a you know like a baby mother they just want you to like serve them you know mm -hmm. so they're just like the worst whereas bad men they won't they won't put you in that role they'll just like they'll just like tie you to the bedpost like just like make you their sex slave and that's it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and for some and for some women that's very attractive the idea that i don't have to be his like slave in the kitchen i could just i could be a slave in the bedroom mm -hmm. you know? And then, like, we both have pleasure then. It's not just, like, me doing something for him, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? And the, but, uh, but she's immature. She's psychologically immature. So I'm mm -hmm. just, you know, so in the end, you know, it's not like I'm saying. But it is an aspect. There, there is a thing, you know, because, like, sometimes nice guys, you know, you, everybody knows, like, nice guys are just, like, often just, like, masking, mm -hmm. like, this, this mass of, like, controlling behavior and, and insecurity and dominance and, in hellish nastiness, you know, you know what I mean? There, it's like, that's just so much, as much of a mask. So mm -hmm. you never really know who anybody is, you know, you know what they're giving you, but you don't. So she's, you know, um, she's afraid of Tony because she's afraid because he doesn't have the passion. She can't see the passion in him. She's the, the nice guy in the, in the story. Mm -hmm. She's afraid that it'll just be like, she'll just be become some kind of a drudge if mm -hmm. she's with him. Like her life will be unexciting. It'll be boring. Mm -hmm. You know? What do you think our culture still doesn't understand about female desire? Well, I think one thing is, <clears throat> well, God, I mean, there, there's like a lot that, that people don't understand about female desire. But one thing I think is like, there's this big confusion about what it means to be objectified. Mm -hmm. And because like, there's really like unhelpful words like that, that keep getting thrown around. Because I think when women, sometimes they, people say women are self-objectifying. I think that's absolute nonsense. I don't think any woman ever does that. <laughs> but women, they like to be beautiful. They like to be admired. They like to be appreciated. Um, they put effort into their beauty, and they like, they like for that to be acknowledged, you know? And they yeah. like to feel sexy. That's not, that's not them wanting to lose power or them wanting to, like, be be oppressed or be like a tool of the patriarchy. That's them asserting their goddess energy 
in a way that's very powerful and, and very, um, is coming from them. It's not like, come, it's like this idea that, oh, if you want to like put on makeup or be beautiful or be sexy, that you're just some sort of a, a, a victim of, of a man, like, oh, like, you know, um, men have forced you, they've brainwashed you, you know, it's kind of like, <laughs> like, it's so insulting to think like a man's desire is always prior to a woman's desire. That is so bullshit. You know, it's kind of yeah. like women have desire. They have their own desire. It's not like they have to be told how they need to look or how they need to behave or what they need to want. It's like as if they're children, as if they have no agency and they have no, you know what I'm saying? Women know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. You know, uh-huh. when they're like, you know, we, you know what I'm saying? It's so, women are so infantilized in terms of their sexuality. It's so irritating, you know, cause you'll get feminists and they'll be like, I'm a feminist. Right. But I'm not going to, you know, like, but you'll get feminists who just think that you're like, I've had arguments with people on Twitter about telling, you know, saying that like I've sold out to the patriarch cause I like to wear dresses. And it's like, well, dresses are really comfortable. I don't find <laughs> jeans comfortable. I like to wear dresses. I'm not wearing dresses in order to like, because I'm just sort of like a brainwashed idiot. It's just because it's a nice form of fashion. Can we just like detach? You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not like, like trying to go like catch a man every time I leave, go to the supermarket, you know, because I'm wearing a dress, you know? <laughs> it's 2023. I mean, wear whatever you want, right? Like as long as yeah. whatever you're wearing is giving yeah. you the essence that you want it to be giving you. Yeah, it's just another way to like, judge women and put them down and yeah it is patriarchal and it's misogynistic but you know where the real subordination lies is in the mind and which is like so here's like so my my main character judith her support her submissiveness and her subordination is she is she is subordinate unconsciously so um because she's accepting she's accepting like like increasing amounts of like abuse and violence in her Mm -hmm. life in Mm -hmm. order to maintain the romance Mm-hmm. And that's where that's where her power starts to diminish. Mm-hmm. Not in like no, it's not like because she wears like these negligees and perfume and everything. That has nothing to do with her power. That's just mm-hmm. her having fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the sub- the submission and the subordination has to do with her consenting to sex acts mm-hmm. that she's not sure if she wants. You know, accepting increasing levels of violence that mm-hmm. she make her extremely uncomfortable, mm-hmm. justifying that violence. You know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Like accepting lies, mm-hmm. you know, there's a whole mm-hmm. bunch of stuff, you know, like that. Uh, on page 24, Judith specifies the intensity of being desired as a specific woman and not just any woman. Another sentence that personally resume, resonated with me, why do you think women seek the singularity or are so overwhelmed <laughs> when well, should I- they get it? Well, I think it's like the same with men too. It's like people want to be in love. They don't want to just be like, like it's very deadening. Like for men who who go to sex workers, it's a deadening experience most of the time because it's just a hookup. And for women who like do hookups, it can Mm -hmm. be very like deadening, like depressing experience because you're Mm -hmm. not connecting with someone. And so even if people love sex and they love sexual adventure and they love to be with multiple partners, uh, often there's something missing and you want something more, you know, you mm-hmm. want some, some real connection. You want to share your life with someone mm-hmm. and it's a different thing. So it's, it's a difference between sex and love, you know, and you know, she's looking, for, she's not just looking for hookups, you know, she's looking for love. Um, 
I feel like you nail it in terms of combining a classical genre with modern day culture when Judith reflects sex with him might be the worst experience of her life or it might be the best, but at least it would be an adventure. And she craved to be shocked out of her life of complacent dullness. What is it about the adventure of sex that can sometimes trump the actual experience of sex? Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I think it's like an inter- it's an idea about like the self, like your identity, your self-concept, like who mm-hmm. you are. Mm-hmm. I think like like what 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 Gavin the the um the love interest in this book um offers her is a chance to transform herself into somebody else, like into um into someone sexier. Yeah, someone sexy, someone beautiful, someone desired. So she passes up this chance. It's like she says she she may never meet again meet anyone like him. She may never have the chance again because she's not the kind of woman that men are like are gravitating towards with that kind of energy usually. Like this mm-hmm. is the first time it's happened to her mm-hmm. because she's kind of closed and she doesn't like wear a lot of makeup and she kind of shuts herself off in the world and she never mm-hmm. she doesn't present herself confidently. You know, so she kind of is not getting that kind of attention from men. And so mm-hmm. when she gets it, it's like she just thinks like, oh, I'm now, I'm this other person. I'm this beautiful person. I'm this special person. And, you know, and she, and, the, and it's, you know, I, again, I wrote it on purpose to have like, there's just like millions of red flags that are screaming out at you like mm-hmm. every second. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, but, you know, romance novels in general have mm-hmm. hundreds of, of red flags and dark romance and 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 really 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 scary guys but it usually ends up like that it all turns out really great mm-hmm. and i just feel like in my experience like if somebody is really it shows you that they're a monster like in the first hour that you know them they probably are mm. they're not going to change you know they're not going to become suddenly this like it wasn't that that you misunderstood so it's like weird it's almost like a lot of these um a lot of the romance novels out there or trying, almost like trying to tell you not to trust your intuition. Like your intuition is that this is a very dangerous man, but then the outcome is going to be that like I can fix him. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, mean, mm-hmm. I can fix him. <laughs> mm-hmm. And as, as you as you said earlier, also abusers lie. So they you know lie. they tell you this isn't a red flag. That's not what's happening, and and yeah, you believe that. And of course, and everybody believes what they want to believe, obviously. Mm-hmm. And you know, mm-hmm. and a lot of and and a lot of people will believe like they find it really easy to understand a man being entrapped by a femme fatale. Like, then they don't judge him for it. They're just like, mm-hmm. of course, look at her. She's so gorgeous. Of course he was, he, he didn't see how she was lying and how she was dangerous and evil. And then, but it's not the same with a woman. Mm-hmm. There's a woman who gets with a bad man. Everybody's like, what's wrong with you? You're so stupid. And it's like the double standard is, is amazing to me, you know? Absolutely. I think that's a great point. Um, you, you know, in your celebration of the heroines of romance novels, you also celebrate their glamour uh, or the glamour in the genre as well. And, um, you know, this, I think, can also be seen in your work in film. Um, what about glamour appeals to you? Well, I don't know. I feel like it's an innate thing. I've had it since I was a kid. My mm-hmm. mother's very beautiful and glamour. You're just, like, born with eyeliner and red lipstick. <laughs> no, but, no, but I watched all these, like, old movies with, with all these, like, you know... Right beautiful screen sirens with perfect makeup and all these gowns and I just was so my mom was obsessed with them which is why I watched them she was always watching movies from the 1930s and 40s and she was really beautiful like everywhere we went you know she was the most beautiful woman in the room and it's like 
And there was something about her beauty. And I just like, I think babies are like, oh, mommy's so beautiful. I think it's kind of an innate thing that you want mommy to be beautiful. And then you want to be like mommy, beautiful mommy or whatever, you know. Oh, absolutely. And she was designing clothes for all these other women. Like she she had um, these great clothes she designed. She was a fashion designer. And she had all these um, actresses and like famous actresses and stuff coming buying her clothes. And they were so beautiful. They were just amazing. I just saw all of this glamour, just this incredible glamour, just all these women coming. We had, we had sales at our house too. And they all come over to the house and they were just like so pretty and I got kind of like really into that when I was really small. I'd just mm-hmm. be like sitting on the floor and like watching these like goddesses trying on these clothes. And they'd come out and they, you know, they didn't care there were no men around. They'd come out naked or whatever, you know, and they'd, they'd have these beautiful bodies. And um, yeah, I was into that. I was into like wanting, wanting, you know, I just loved that. Loved mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. fantasy. Mm-hmm. I, I guess like aesthetics are important to you. Beauty is important to you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it is for me too. I, I, I sort of, I always joke that it's because I'm a Libra, um, <laughs> I mean, but I don't even know if it's a joke really. It's just truly be- like, we're here, we're on this earth, things should be beautiful. You, do you know what I mean? Like, Oh yeah, I yeah. totally agree. Yeah, that's why, you know, in my movies, I always like, like to play around with makeup and color mm-hmm. and things like that because I really like like that. I think if, if I have a chance to make a movie, why would I want to make it all drab, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um. Okay, so I have this theory that I have told my friends in the past year, and it annoys them so much because they know me. But it's it's sort of a theory I I had, like a revelation I had in terms of what do men want and what do men what are men attracted to, and I do think especially in in observing you know the men in my life, at least from some sort of beauty standard, they want a little girl. They want, you know, when, when a guy comes up to you and thinks, what, what, do, what do they call women? You know, they're just like, you're so cute. You're so lovely. You're so whatever. You're so possibly fragile. Um, and my friends hate that I, my little girl theory because I'm obviously not fragile and I'm, you know, a lot more than just like a cute little thing. Uh, but I saw, and then I read this on page 55, um, he started calling her princess, you right, because according to him, she was a spoiled princess and a quote-unquote little girl, because he said she was still a sweet, innocent Lolita in bed despite all he taught her. This made him want to take her over and over again, and each day they were more besotted with their love. And then I was like, I'm right. <laughs> I read the paragraph, and I was like, see, they, they just want a little girl. And I'm sort of wondering yeah. what your thoughts are on that. I also could be absolutely wrong, but I do think it's an interesting conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really patronizing when men do that, but I also think it is part of male sexuality to want, like, a really young woman. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's because of fertility, like some ancient, you know, instinct they have that younger women are more fertile, or, or whether it's, you know, whatever it is, but I really do think that men... They really, I just, in my experience, yeah, they want somebody young and they want somebody who seems really young and sweet and really innocent. And, mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah, and the majority of men really enjoy that. And they also like to feel like they're, they're stronger and they're smarter. And, you know, just whatever, whatever it does for them as a man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like playing dumb, you know, you know, you have to play dumb and you have to play damsel in distress and you have to... Mm-hmm. Um, you have to play sweet and, or you might even be sweet, but I think, I feel like, I feel like, you know, it's, it's the whole Madonna whore thing, you know, men, you know, they want to marry the Madonna, 
mm-hmm. they want to sleep with the whore, but they want their they want their 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 girl to mm-hmm. be they don't want her to be like a whore. There, there's certain men who like do want their girl to be a whore. And I mm-hmm. think there's that's a certain type of man. Mm-hmm. That's usually like an evil type of man, I would say. And they, they, they kind of hide behind like, oh, you know, I support sex workers and like mm-hmm. blah blah blah. But there's it's really sort of a more evil it's more like they want to corrupt innocent girls and, and turn them into sex workers or something. I've had, I had that experience. I, when I was in 19, I worked at a Japanese hostess bar and like every single night people were like, people trying to get me to, trying to see what my price was to like, mm-hmm. and you know, it wasn't the kind of bar where you were supposed to do that. The, 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 the mama said she would, she would fire anybody who slept with the, the guys, but some of them did. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that they, they all sort of were so like pushing you like 19, I was so innocent, trying to push, just push, 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 push. Like, like every girl has a price. You know, all women are just stupid whores. They have no values. You know? And they just, it's not like they, they respected, you know, they respected a woman with their own proud sexuality. Like they actually supported women who did sex work. I'm not, I'm not saying like, I wouldn't call anyone a whore. I'm not, I'm not saying this isn't my language. I'm just mm-hmm. saying that's what they thought. They thought mm-hmm. women that did sex work filthy horse but they wanted everyone to be one it was weird it was like they hated women or something you know they just mm-hmm. wanted and of course if it was their daughter they would they, you know you know it's, it's weird but it's like they have they, they put women into categories like their mm-hmm. daughter is like an innocent whatever a madonna and their wife and then they're but these girls that work at a bar it's like they're just like they just want to trample you under their feet you know mm-hmm. i don't know <laughs> It just that was my experience working there. Yeah, no, uh, it resonates. Um, uh, you you also highlight the the bluebeard archetype as a staple of the romance genre. You know, obviously that's what you're doing with this book. Uh, why do you think the bluebeard archetype is a staple of the romance genre? Well, I think that started with Fifty Shades of Grey, actually, because that was a clear bluebeard story. That was like he had a pain room. You know, he was, was a sadistic. You know, he was mm-hmm. literally had a had a bloody chamber. Except it, instead of dead wives inside of it, it was like torture instruments, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of what that's what revived it. You know, but I really think that the popularity of that book, the popularity of Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, that's what started this whole dark romance genre that we've had ever since. Mm-hmm. And but the popularity of it, I think, is has to do with the fact that it's so archetypal and that it relates to the fairy tale Bluebeard. So there's something about it being a Bluebeard story, I think, that was key in making it so incredibly popular. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I think there's something. It was something like really deeply, deeply interesting about about it using that archetype because I think to me, like the sex parts in that uh, in that book were boring. The thing that was really interesting about that book was the power dynamics between like a woman and a man and the negotiation, the back and forth negotiation about who mm-hmm. had the power. To me, that mm-hmm. was very skillfully done in that book. Mm-hmm. Why a novel? And will you be returning to film? And, and why the switch in form or what drew you to it? Well, I couldn't make, because I couldn't make my film. I, I wrote this as a screenplay and I couldn't get okay. it made. Yeah, because that was going to be my other question. At any point in the writing of this novel, did you picture it on screen? But yeah, no, it started. Yeah, I had a screenplay. I was shopping it around for about three years, and I, I had it set up at, at a couple of different production companies, and a lot of people read the script, and it, it seemed like it was going to get made. And then um, I just found it, it, it kind of fell apart with this one producer, and then 
I got with another producer right before the pandemic, mm-hmm. and then the pandemic hit, and then it was just all operations stopped, mm-hmm. and then I couldn't even get any meetings in Hollywood. And plus, I think everyone had already seen it in Hollywood and in England. All the all the producers had already seen it. I'd already gone through everyone, and I'd found mm-hmm. found I think the right person to do it. And then it was just like, like sorry, we're we're shutting down operations. And so, um, my boyfriend suggested writing it as a novel. And I thought that's a great idea because, you know, in the meantime, I'd written another screenplay and I'd shown it to some people, but nothing was going on at that time. Everything was so weird. It was so hard to get anybody interested in a project unless you were like already, I don't know, unless you, you, you already had something going before the pandemic. It was really hard to get something started after the pandemic hit, like that wasn't already in place. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that was really hard. So I just thought no film production is going on maybe for a year or more. Mm-hmm. So let's, why don't I just um, write a novel? And mm-hmm. so, and so he said, like, write a novel. And I said, well, this is, this is the only story I want to tell right now. And he said, well, then write that story as a novel. I was like, yeah, great idea. I'll just do mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. That's how the book came about. Do you feel like you have other novels in you now that you've done this? Well, I don't write at the moment because actually that other screenplay that I wrote um, during the pandemic, that is get, getting produced now. Okay. So now on that so <laughs> I have to focus like I've been doing the book tour but now I have to focus all my energy on the movie mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so um that's what I'm focusing on and then when that's done maybe I'll write another novel I don't know I that's exciting that's exciting I've, I'm a big fan of your film so I look forward to seeing more um who is this book for who do you hope reads it well I it's I mean I really I really think it's for young women and it's it's kind of for Love Witch fans. I mean, I kind of wrote it for yeah. the kind of women that I've been interacting with the past several years who are fans of my work, for young women who are interested in dark romance, but also in um, just kind of, it's so, so interesting. I have all these women that I'm connected to with on tw- to on Twitter that are classic movie fans and they're fans of, of really interesting literature written by women and everything. And it's just like, I just felt like it was for them, kind of, and I just, I felt like, I, at least I had a few people in mind, you know, for sure, that I thought would, would really like it, you know? Mm-hmm. And one of those women that, I, that I'm friends with on Twitter actually left her abusive husband after reading my book. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's profound, yeah. Yeah, she said it deprogrammed her. Wow, wow. Two months after reading it, she just, like, I guess he did something mm-hmm. that was like once again something terrible and mm-hmm. she called the police mm. got him arrested and deported and everything you know it was amazing he was from England oh wow yeah, yeah. I, I mean I guess I guess my other question is like on sort of on the reverse because the book is very gendered even though like life is a lot more complicated than that but what would you hope men who read this book take away from it well, it's interesting because I would just base this on like the responses I've already gotten, mm-hmm. which is like at my at my book signings, it's usually a mix of mainly young women and then some like really sweet gay men. Mm-hmm. And one um, gay man wrote on on a Goodreads review that it also like deprogrammed him to accept sexual violence in his life, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is really interesting. And mm-hmm. it's like, and then some of the men that I've talked to have said it makes them kind of understand what women go through. Mm-hmm. in relationships mm-hmm. that it's like it's much tougher than they thought that mm-hmm. it makes them see it makes it's kind of sad like they didn't see how tough it is for women who are trying to navigate relationships and that it, it gave them kind of a wake-up call I feel like that's 
that's that's a thread in all your work, right? It's like there's yeah, kind yeah. of like a little urgent message that's sort of yeah. being said about, about definitely. And then and then some men just like always dismiss my work as just surface level and like it's not about anything and it's just about the visuals and that's happening as well. Mm. So, um, <clears throat> but I feel like it's interesting because like when I made my movie Viva, a lot of the people in the men in the audience were men who were interested in erotica, soft erotica. And um, that's been slowly been shifting. So, so now when I go in these book signings, it's, the audience has shifted from straight men to like women and gay men. Mm-hmm. It's like it's almost completely now women and gay men. I just think that's amazing because I think that's more, that's more like, like, you know, the people who actually understand it more deeply instead of on a, on a more, a more surface level are the ones that are coming to my events. I think you found your audience, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And so like most of the journalists who are writing about this are women. Um, almost everyone who's interviewed me has been a woman. It's really mm-hmm. interesting. And then the men who have interviewed me have been very uh, sensitive to women's issues. Mm-hmm. You know, the straight men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Anna. This was wonderful. Um, listeners, please go ahead and pick up a copy of Bluebeard's Castle at your local uh, bookseller. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Thank you.